Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. As we get started, I wanted to tell you this story. Well, really, just about a day in the life of a woman called Elizabeth. We'll call her Lizzie for short. Um, I'm going to tell you about a day in her life, and then you have to tell me. You can do it in your head if you like, or shout out if you you feel like it. You have to tell me what her job is. Okay, so this is a day in the life of a woman called Elizabeth. She gets up early. It's hard to sleep in when you're over 90 years old, so I've heard. Um, So she gets up pretty early, and as soon as she's got up, wiped the sleep from her eyes, swung her legs over the side of her four-poster bed, she rings a little bell, and open open wide the huge doors, and in walks two or three different butlers, carrying enormous silver, sterling silver breakfast services with covers and all sorts of kinds of things. They lay it down on her bed, or perhaps she has a table, I don't really know. I've never been in her room before. Um, but they open up, and, and what is there? All sorts of tea, Darjeeling tea from the highlands of India, um, the nicest of all kinds of marmalades and butters. And if you look carefully on the side of the jar, it would say, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen, um, whoever she is at the moment. So after she's had her breakfast, she heads off to her day, puts on her gown, perhaps a matching colored hat, and is off to her work to open a new gallery and cut the ribbon, or to, to a new school, a new community project to go and visit some old um, veterans of um, this war or that, to a lunchtime meeting with the Archbishop of Canterbury, to an afternoon tea with some members of Parliament and perhaps the Prime Minister herself, and then a garden party in the afternoon to pin some badges on the chests of some soldiers and some other important and impressive people. And then half past three, and the school run has been completed, not by her, but the school run is done, and so in come the great-great-grandchildren, um, to, play, to play with her. Uh, they run up and down the halls. Perhaps she walks with them and pushes little carts and, and bicycles. And I wonder if you've guessed who it is yet. Do you know who it is? It's the Queen. It's Queen Elizabeth. I didn't have to tell you that. I wonder at what point in the story you got there. It's na- well, we shouldn't really call her Lizzie, should we? Unless we want to get ourselves in trouble. But this is Elizabeth of Windsor, the Queen, Queen of our, our great British Isles. I wonder when you twigs who she really was. That's the kind of thing that Mark is doing in chapter 1. He's giving you a day in the life. Last week we did uh, the first half of the, of the story, and now we come to a day in the life of this Jesus, who Mark has told us already is a Messiah, which is a, a Jewish word that means savior or king, the kind of promised one. It's tied up with all of these old, old promises from prophets like the prophet I read to you at the very beginning of the service. And he's also the son of God, or so claims Mark the Son of God. That means he's equal with God, that he's always been around. Even before he was born, he existed. Before you were born, he existed. That if you like, you sit in his lap, you breathe his oxygen. He says yes or no to your heart beating. He's the one who holds history in his hands, or so claims Mark. But look, Mark says, don't just go on my words. Let me show you. Let me give you a day in the life. In fact, let me me tell you about his whole life. And then you make your own mind up as to who this really is, as to whether he is the king, the Messiah or not, as to whether you want to be a part of his kingdom. So let's read together. 
pray, and then we'll read together a day in the life of this Messiah. Father God, we ask now as we come to your word, as we read this story of your son, we pray that it would come alive to our minds. We know that your word is living and is, and is active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So Father, would you put it to work? Would you switch on our minds? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts that burn as we read of him and see him? Would you, Father, cut away all the things in our lives that are wrong and have no place? And Father, would you bind up those wounds? Would you restore us? Would you make us into what you want us to be as citizens of your kingdom, as subjects of your wonderful king, the Lord Jesus? Father, we pray that you would persuade us and convince us as we see his life today. Would you make him walk off these pages and into our lives that we might never be the same again? Amen. Amen. Well, verse 14, and let's read the next chapter of our story. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they, let their, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then we get to the beginning of this day in the life of Jesus. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and he came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, perhaps for a bit of Sunday lunch. But Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is God's word. I wonder if you spotted there the kinds of things that, that make Jesus king. There's two, really, two big things I want us to hear this morning. One is I want you to hear Jesus speaking, and the other, I want you to see, really, Jesus acting. That's what Elizabeth of Windsor does in her day, isn't it? That's what proves her to be a queen, the things that she says. How do you do? And um, tell me about what you do. All these kind of things that a queen gets to say, and, and things that she does that nobody else can do. 
Well, Jesus says things nobody else can say. He does things nobody else can do. And so the question is, who on earth is this? Such amazing teaching. That's where we're going to start. What does Jesus say? Just look at his authority. He sits down in a synagogue, and traditionally they would have been sitting down, the preacher sitting down to teach. He's invited to speak that day. And as he speaks, people are amazed. They've never heard anything like this. They're used to the scribes and the Pharisees and other clever scholars teaching. And perhaps they would teach as scholars teach today. You know, Well, on balance, I suppose if you weigh up everything together, one might observe and, and decide that perhaps we could eventually come to the conclusion that gently and carefully, one might think this. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't hedge his bets. He says things like you would read in Matthew 5. If you go and read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus quotes scripture and says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, or you've heard it said that you should not murder. He quotes God speaking, and then he says, but I say to you, and then he goes even further, you shouldn't even look at somebody lustfully. You shouldn't even be angry with somebody, or you've committed murder in your heart against them. Jesus speaks with incredible authority. We don't get many of his speeches or sermons in the book of Mark. It's lots of action and just a few words. But Mark sums it up like this. Jesus went about preaching in verse 15 and said, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is here. God is about to do an amazing work. Did you see what day it was uh, that, they, or that all these things happened? It was the Sabbath day. Perhaps you can go away and think about that a little bit more. Why is this the Sabbath day? Well, that's the day of rest, the day of peace, the day that everything is uh, completed in creation, and now the day that God comes to put everything right again, to bring his kingdom. And Jesus is the one who says that it's arrived. Jesus is the one who stands up and teaches as if he's God, as if he's not just quoting the Bible and standing under its authority, as I'm doing today, but that he's standing over scripture and says, my scripture, my word tells you this, but let me tell you even more. Let me go even further. Let me explain that to you. And so I say to you, Jesus has amazing authority. I wonder if you were listening to his voice. Uh, my parents work in Malaysia. They're missionaries. They work in a Bible college, teaching pastors, um, teaching preachers. And there's one real struggle that they find in the churches and um, kind of an, an attitude problem that, that they found in some of the churches in Malaysia. And it's this, that the people really like confusing sermons because the more confusing the sermon is, the more mysterious it feels. And so the less that you can understand it, uh, the more mysterious it feels, the better the sermon must be. And so my parents and uh, plenty of other teachers in the college spend their lives teaching the pastors and, and teaching um, the leaders of, or future leaders of the churches to try and preach simple sermons to try and preach things that people can understand, to try and preach with the Bible's authority because we're supposed to understand these things. We're supposed to understand about God. That's what Jesus did. He came teaching to help people understand, teaching with great authority so that they could know that there really is a God in heaven and so that they could come and follow him. I wonder if you've heard his voice. I wonder if you've been listening to him. Not just in the kind of parts in quotes, you know, the, the red letters, if you have one of those red letter Bibles, but to the whole of the scriptures, have you been listening to God's voice? Have you been listening to him say to you that, that he exists, that he is there, that we're not alone in this world, that it's not just random chance, it's not just time plus matter plus whatever else, and, and so accidentally we popped up, but no, you're made by a God 
You are made by God to know him and to love him, to walk with him closely, to know and love other people and to walk with them closely. The world's gone wrong. Have you heard his story? And have you believed it and come and been written into it? Jesus spoke with amazing authority and proved that he really was this God walking on the earth. I wonder if you've heard him. Jesus isn't just all about words. I mean, he holds preaching in high regard, doesn't he? Right at the end of the chapter where we read, the disciples come and say, come on, Jesus, you've got to go and, uh, you're famous now. We've got to go back and heal some more people, start up a big ministry, perhaps hire a big tent and do something amazing. But Jesus says, no, what I've got to do is go and speak and speak and go to these other towns and speak and tell them that the kingdom's coming. Jesus holds speaking in really high regard, but he's not just a man of words, is he? He doesn't just bark, but he bites as well. Look at his action. The people are all sitting around, amazed at this sermon. Wow, it's brilliant, isn't it? So interesting, so authoritative, so powerful. And then somebody chirps up. I wonder if you've ever been in a church service where something like this has happened. I was in a service once, sitting right on the far right, thankfully, when a man walked into the back of the church and pulled a big knife out. This wasn't in Indonesia or Malaysia or anywhere like that. It was in Seven Oaks in Kent. Nice civilized, civilized place. But a man who was a troubled man, known to a good few in the church, um, but who had taken something, I don't know what, and was in real trouble. And he'd found himself a knife and walked into the back of the church and started shouting. And everybody started. It was a really strange experience when you're focused on one thing, one thing and then something happens down the back that, that you weren't expecting. It's a really strange outburst. But, well, somebody stood up and took the knife calmly out of his hands, sat him down and, and called an ambulance. And it was all okay then. And what does Jesus do here? Somebody pipes up from the audience. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this isn't just a man speaking. This is somebody who is under the influence of an evil spirit. We'll find a lot of those stories like this in Mark. And so we're not going to spend much time thinking about evil spirits today. If you want to ask questions about that today, fine, chat to me afterwards. And we'll think about it in a bit more detail later on. But this really is a, a brilliant summary of what we do if we ever encounter um, forces, spiritual forces beyond our control. We bring them to Jesus. or We bring Jesus to them. And Jesus says this, be quiet, come out of him. And what does Jesus do with his words? Well, he acts. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek and runs away. As Jesus speaks, things happen. If you know your Bible, you might remember right at the very beginning, in the first few pages, where God speaks and things happen. All he does is speak. He doesn't touch, he doesn't mold or do anything like that. He just speaks and says, let there be light. And light shines in darkness. And that's what happened to this man. His life was pressed down by darkness. Jesus just spoke. And the demon flew away. People were so amazed about this. They asked, who is this? Jesus continues acting. He goes to, um, to the house of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother's ill. And everybody has, well, I guess shut her in an upper room somewhere, as we do with people who are ill. I'm here alone this morning because my wife is at home looking after a little daughter who was um, throwing up all of last night. So you probably don't want to come too close to me after the service, just in case I'm carrying something. And that's what we do, isn't it? I, I don't know if you've ever seen Japanese or Chinese students in universities that often are kind of tourists walk around with a little mask so that they don't pass on colds to other people. We do that. We wear all that oil or we, we keep ourselves away from people. We, we care about infection control. 
but Jesus doesn't care about infection control. Jesus, instead of staying downstairs and saying, oh, good, I'm glad you put her upstairs because, you know, she's got the lurgy, she's got a fever, we don't want to catch that because we've got an important job to do. You know, going around preaching, it's pretty important. Healing people, it's pretty important. So, so they lock her away and keep her away from Jesus. Well, no. Jesus goes up to her. No infection control whatsoever. No need for gloves or anything like that. He touches her and says, get up. Well, actually, we don't even have any record of anything he says. He just helps her up. The fever leaves, and Jesus heals her. You see, Jesus speaks and acts amazingly powerfully. So who is this who can just make fevers go like that? Who isn't scared about getting infected by them, but whose sort of overflowing kindness and goodness and, and health flows into her, and she's healed? Who is this who can just speak to a demon that's been oppressing this man for who knows how long, and he goes away? Who is it who can just speak? And people drop everything and follow him. This is the king. This is the son of God. This is the one who has authority over everything. This is the one who said, let there be light. And light popped into being. This is the one who is king over a new world. This is the one whose life is really good news for you and for me. So he's spoken. He's acted. I think he's proven and demonstrated that he's a king, but... What on earth are we going to do about that? Well, we've got to respond, haven't we? If we see who he really is, there has to be a response, because this isn't just a story for old times. It's not just something for the Jews back in the day. Mark, as I mentioned last week, is a book that was written to Roman people, not to Jews, to Roman people mostly, in Rome, who lived about 30 or 40 years after Jesus lived, after Jesus died and then rose again. So Mark is writing to people who aren't Jews, who live much, much later, who live in a time when Jesus is alive and is reigning as the king over the whole of the universe. We'll get to that as we work through the, the rest of the story. Mark says to them, to these people he's writing to, this is your Messiah too, not just for the Jews. This is your son of God, who's, by the way, if he's really God, he's God over everyone. This is for you. So come on, come and do something about it. Well, this isn't just for the Romans either, is it? It's for you and I. We live in the time when Jesus is king, risen and ascended over everything. We aren't Jews, most of us. We live in a time far, far after these things happen, but they're still extremely, extremely relevant to us. Because don't we get sick? Don't we struggle with spiritual oppression and darkness? Don't we struggle with all sorts of kinds of confusion? And wouldn't we love to have somebody come and teach us clearly and authoritatively and say, this is what you should do. That's what you shouldn't do. We live in a time that needs Jesus, don't we? We live in a time that needs God's kingdom to be spread far and wide. So what do we do to make that happen? What do we do to be a part of this? Well, we listen to what Jesus said, and this is what he says. Repent and believe the good news. And then listen to what he says to the fishermen. In verse 17, he says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So four little angles you could think about on what we need to do. Believe repent, follow, and fish. Four little things. They don't really come in sequence. Um, I suppose fishing comes after all the, the other three, but they're really all wrapped up together. If you're a Christian, this is what you are. You're somebody who's repented, who's turned away from your old life, and who's believed, who's not just turned away, but who's turned to a new life, to Jesus, who is the life. 
You've turned away, you've turned to, and you're beginning to follow him. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a light a candle at the front of the meeting or put a hand up or pray a prayer once back in the day. This is every day, walking, following Jesus. And then you also are to go and fish and bring other people to come and know him. Let's think about those a little bit more closely. What is repentance all about? Well, repentance is not just regret. It's not just feeling a bit sorry for yourself and feeling, feeling that you should try a bit harder. You could think about it, some people think about it, like an Ofsted inspection. I don't know how many teachers there are out there, but I suppose a number of us have children in school or have been children in school or have been teachers or no teachers, and you know the terror of an Ofsted inspection, don't you? When the letter comes in, or is it a phone call these days, or maybe they just turn up, I've heard, and the Ofsted inspectors are here, and what do we do? Well, do up the top button, tighten the tie, try and get all the paperwork in order, you know, look busy, work hard, do all the things you probably, well, some things that you don't really do in the rest of the term, just to impress the Ofsted inspector, because they're here. Some people think of repentance a bit like that. You know, Jesus is coming. You've got to look busy. Jesus is coming. Get your, your files in order. Jesus is coming. Do something good and, you know, love people. Just try and impress him. That's not really what repentance is. That's not what Jesus is calling for here. It's a lot more like having a brand new head teacher in a failing school. I don't know if some of you have experienced that. When a school is just rotten and there's no discipline, the teachers are really struggling, the teachers are possibly half the part of the problem, the old headmaster is definitely the problem. And so what we need is root and branch reform. We need to change everything. And so we take out the old headmaster and we bring in a new one. And now everything has changed. And perhaps you might be sitting there as a, as a teacher, if you were teaching in this school, a little bit worried that you were going to get the chop as well. But no, this head teacher comes in, and he or she is really wonderful, really good. They love to give people second chances and third chances, and, and they love discipline and, and, and order and that kind of thing, but they do it with great warmth and skill and wisdom, and they seem to be able to get everybody on side. And so soon, this school is really working well, and it's moving forward, and the children are, are enjoying learning, and they're doing better, and the exam results are going up, and everything's improving because the leadership has changed, because the, there's a new head teacher. And so you were worried perhaps about getting the sack, but the head teachers come to you and said, no, come and be a part of it. Come and change your ways. Come and let's sort out a bit of that paperwork. Come and let me show you how to be a better teacher. Let's change things. That's what repentance really is. It's not just tidying yourself up for Jesus so that he might let you carry on, might let you turn over a new leaf. This is about complete root and branch reform of our lives. You see, everything changes. We say goodbye to the past, and we come and follow a new king. We say goodbye to all of that failure, all of that rottenness, all of that dirt, and we say, I'm going to not just try again, I'm going to be born again. I'm going to be new. I'm going to come and leave everything for him. That's what repentance is. It's turning your back on that old life, that old godless life, and living consistently with the fact that there is a king, that there is a king here with us this morning. That's what repentance and faith is. Seeing that he's come and brought a new kingdom, a new regime, and saying, I want in on that. I believe that he's God. I believe he's the king. I believe that he died and rose for me. We'll get to that later. I believe that he can do all of this, that with a word, he can cast out evil spirits, that with a a hand, he can raise the dead. I believe he can do that, and I want in on his project. That's repentance and faith. That's trusting in Jesus and saying, I want to come and be a citizen of his kingdom. And then we follow him. We give up everything. It's like writing a blank check. 
That's what these boys do, isn't it? I mean, imagine Emma and Gaz, who are part of a family business. Their father and their mother have built that up. They've been through hard times and good times, and, and the business is going well. And now a man comes along and says, come on, boys, time to leave it all behind. Can you imagine how much you would have to trust that he really is worth it to leave all that behind? Do you see how much it costs to be a Christian? In many ways, it's completely free. Jesus comes and says, have the world, have this kingdom, and leave all your life behind. Just, I just want you. But at the same time, it costs you a lot, doesn't it? It costs you all that old life. And some of it, some of that old life we do quite like. We do quite enjoy. But Jesus comes along to James and John, to Simon and Andrew, and says, leave it all behind and come and follow me. He says that to some Christians, that we might need to change our occupation. We might need to change our lives completely. But to all Christians, he says, this has at least got to be on the table. It's like writing a blank check, isn't it? I don't know if you write checks anymore, um, but imagine those old checkbooks. You sign it, and then you give it to somebody with the little number box blank, with the lines where you write the cost blank. And you give it to them and say, whatever you need, whatever you want, it's yours, and you sign it. That's what it means to become a Christian, to give Jesus everything, to write over to him all that you have and say, it's all on the table. My car is for you. My sofa is for you. My children, they're yours. My uh, family, they're yours. All of my money, it's yours. My future, my plans, my hopes and dreams, everything belongs to you. That's what these boys did because they looked at Jesus and they saw in him somebody who was worth it. And Jesus said to them, well, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you somebody who comes and gathers other people in. Somebody who it doesn't just keep this to yourself, but somebody who invites and welcomes other people to come and join the party. So have you made that step yet? In a moment, we'll come to the bread and the wine. And this really is a picture of what we do as Christians, of what we do to become Christians. We come to Jesus and we say, Lord Jesus, everything that I've been eating, everything I've been doing in my life so far that's been giving me a reason to live, that's been, that I've been walking in, that I've been following, all the things I've been doing, I give them up to you and I want to take what you're giving to me instead. I want to take you. So the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. His blood is represented by the juice, by the wine that's been poured out for us. This Jesus who gives everything they're wonderful things for a king to do, aren't they? To go and spend time with sick people. To go and spend time with spiritually oppressed people. To go and spend time teaching, one-to-one, -one, calling rough-ish fishermen. Imagine a king doing that. And he comes and even gives his body for you, his blood for you. And so on the table now, here and at the back, are representations of what we're doing when we come to the Lord Jesus. We're saying, I lay down all of my old life. I give it over to you, and I want to take what you have for me. Would you give me your life, your body? Would you give me your blood and clean me, make me fit to be a part of this kingdom? So perhaps you've never done that before. Perhaps you've never come and prayed. Perhaps you've never thought about leaving everything behind. Perhaps you thought Christianity was just a cultural thing. You know, we come along and do some church stuff on Sunday and, and leave it until next Sunday. You know, Christianity is something where all of our lives are on the table. So have you given your life to him? You come and see that he really is king over everything, that he really is worth leaving everything for. Have you 
if you are a Christian, have you gone out and shown that to other people? Let me encourage you or challenge you to be thinking and praying for um, colleagues or family friends who you could open Mark's gospel with over the coming months and, and read through portions with them. Ask them if they have ever heard about Jesus and would like to know a little bit about him. Maybe think about people you could invite to a Christianity Explored course. We've got one starting in a couple of weeks' time that walks through some of the stories in Mark's gospel in this book and asks some really basic questions about who is Jesus and what are we to do with him. Have you started following him? Have you given up everything to come and be a part of his kingdom? Well, let me pray and model for you a prayer that you could pray if you would like to do that. And then we'll come to the bread and wine together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a good and gracious Father. We thank you that you've given to us your only Son. We thank you that he is the King over everything. And what a King he is, who would banish sickness, who would remove spiritual oppression and darkness, who would feed us with his own body spiritually that we might live for eternity, who would call us out that we might respond to him, who would say, come and have the greatest adventure you could ever have. Father, we, we say sorry now for the things that we've done um, that, have, that have been us pretending as if there's no king. Father, we're sorry for those sins, for those things that we've done uh, that we shouldn't have done, for the things that, that we haven't done that we should have done. We're sorry for living as if you don't exist, for living as if there is no king. Father, would you forgive us for what we've done. Forgive us for those things and show, show us, we pray, the Lord Jesus. Would you clean us by his blood again? As we come to the table, would you give us great assurance in our hearts? Would you help us to really know that the Lord Jesus belongs to us and that we belong to him? Would you help us to know we've been cleaned by his blood, that we've been um, sustained and given spiritual life by his body? Father, would you help us as we come to this table now to leave our old lives behind to look to the future, to follow you, and to go out boldly to share this message and bring more people into your kingdom, we pray. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.